One of the simple problems that many farmers face is that they don't own the land. Just so much of the habitat loss and degradation does seem to be coming from yeah. farmland. Your average farmer is very undeservedly demonised in terms of the amount of public goods that were generated. No, it wasn't very good value at all. Unfortunately, it's quite literally bankrupted the country. I'm not prepared to risk the future on some crazy assumption. Hello and welcome back again to this episode of the Marginal Bubble podcast. In today's episode, I sit down to talk with Dr Ian Bateman OBE out of the University of Exeter's Business School to discuss modern agriculture and its effects on British and global biodiversity loss. Ian is an environmental economist whose research relates to ensuring sustainable well-being, particularly with regard to decision making and policy. Ian is also a member of the Environmental Council advising the Scottish Government and was awarded his OBE in 2013 for services to environmental science and policy. As ever, reference research material is included in the description down below and without further ado, Let's get into the episode. Enjoy. In your article, you mentioned that agriculture is the main driver of, of um, habit loss and degradation across the world. Why is there any, such an increased demand for agricultural land specifically? Is it just because we're growing as a population globally and we need more food and resources to meet those demands? Um, is there, or is there something else intertwined with it? Uh, well, the number one thing at the very base is that you know we, we've we've bumbled along uh, on this planet for a couple of million years with really very low population density. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, a few millions spread around the planet, and then in the last century, in this, there's been an absolute, almost bacterial explosion of the human population. Yeah, um, it really is. Um, what we call an exponential curve. It just shoots up into the air. Uh, and you've gone from population measured in uh, uh, tens or at most hundreds of millions to now billions of people, thousands of millions of people, 8,000 million people at the moment. So that's the number one driver. There are some exacerbating factors um, we produce food in a very um, unusual way in that, uh, for example, if we want uh, to uh, raise uh, beef here, then uh, quite a lot of the feed for that will come from the other side of the world. Right, yeah. And um, typically from land which is um, artificially low in price, a price that doesn't reflect its value, and where you can go out and just... You know, slash and burn, get rid of the forest, plant soy, and then ship that off to Europe. They take a lot of land uh, to to uh, to produce. Yeah, because that's always something that when someone bring up brings up this um, environmental argument with um, animals and things like that, mm. uh, I think one sometimes people that are on the sort of like oh, we need to it's fine the meat eating side of the equation, mm. they always bring up is oh actually do you know the rainforest cut down for soy and soy is used in all this kind of stuff yeah. and and I'm like yeah that is true but what, what you don't potentially what you're not considering is that ninety percent of that soy is going into animal feed so yeah. you cut, so if you cut the demand for animals then then, then that demand for soy goes down. And so there is yeah. a little bit of a paradox in, in at least that example. Although I do want to stress, I, I, you know, I think just saying, uh, right, everybody's got to change their diet is a bit, a, a lot of 
academics, I'm afraid, I think resort to that as, as quite a lazy guess house. Mm-hmm. The, the fact is that we can't control people's diets in, in the world that we have uh, now. We can influence them, definitely. Um, and prices have an even bigger influence, and actually we can exert some change there. But we have to um, accept the world to some extent the way it is rather than sort of pretending uh, that, that everybody's going to suddenly become vegan, right? Sort right. Of stuff. So I don't think that sort of thinking really helps us very much. It's like, it is literally betting the farm on a pretty long shot, really. And given that the farm here is the entire globe, we can't afford that. We've got to come up with um, realistic solutions and just saying, well, everybody's going to go vegan um, is not one of those. Well, is it, would that even, I'm imagining just because just like if you go by a food biomass pyramid, I would imagine there's, you know, less um, energy going into, in terms of crops and things, going into just the plants than it is like the animals. But as you say, it's not quite as um, simple as that and that you'd still have things like slash and burn farming in the Amazon where they're still trying to yeah. and all those kind of things. I mean, so. don't get me wrong, you know, if we did <laughs> all go even vegetarian, um, it would solve so many problems. There's absolutely no doubt. And if, if people listening to this podcast, you know, want to make one change to their life, which will actually make your personal footprint upon the planet much, much smaller, it is to change your diet. Yeah. That is the thing that I would be going for. You know, buy an electric car by all means, that's absolutely grand. But actually changing what you eat will um, alter your impact on the planet quite profoundly yeah i'm a little bit skeptical about the the electric car for example as well but predominantly because they have the kind of resources and the minerals and the um well that's why i, I don't the, I, you know given the choice between those two policies should i uh, should i buy an electric car or should i change my diet no the, change your diet the, i think the return would be much higher on on the diet side of it with the electric car side of it i think that i think you're just swapping out one bad for another bad unfortunately in, in that regard but in regards to uh, the popular cult, um, conservation policies that are going on across the globe, not just yeah. in the UK, but uh, around the globe, um, it does seem obviously that farming is really sort of at the heart of it because just so much of the habitat loss and degradation does seem to be coming from yeah. farmland. And so is there enough policy in terms of well, economic policy, but also governmental policy in, in regards to farmland to try and cope with it? cope with biodiversity loss and try and maintain it but also still maintain an economic value to it so i want to start off answering that with i admit a bit of a statement and it's that i think um your average farmer is uh, very undeservedly demonized uh, by a lot of research uh, a lot of um uh, press um the, the farmers that i've met um, the large majority of them, not all of them, but the large majority of them are, um, are not particularly well off, uh, not owning massive amounts of land. Um, they are trying to make a go of some very challenging circumstances, uh, making some of the most difficult decisions of any business in the world. You know, they, normally, you, you know what you're going to produce if you do this and, and what you're going to sell it for. Well, you don't know either of those things in farming, 
you know, and it's not just you that's going to suffer if you get it wrong. It's your partner and and your family, you know. So that I, th- I think there's we do need um, to uh, get away from blaming farmers. I do think, however, we can rightly criticise the uh, policy and payment framework within which farming operates uh, in, in this country and many other countries because they encourage policies which are not particularly, well, almost always really poor value for money for taxpayers and they hem farmers in uh, from um, what uh, a number of options which many of them would be interested in taking but are just simply uneconomic. Yeah. You know, and it's not fair to say to a farmer, you've got to take a 30% income cut so that everybody else is getting, is better off. No, and of all the jobs out there that, you know, even if they were earning a lot of money, it is a, a role that is directly linked into to our food source and our well-being. Yeah. Yeah. And also, it's a very difficult job. It's, a, it's, it's an all-hours really job. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like you can take a holiday every now and it's not a nine-to-five. It's dirty. It's messy. It's yeah. a it's a hard job, and and it's like and it does literally provide one of the key yeah. functioning portions of our society at the end. Absolutely. Of the day. So so even if they were getting paid very very well, like it's the, of all the things that could be paid well, you probably want one. That's probably one of the areas <laughs> right then. Yeah. Doctors, you know, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So even if they were, I think that's an argument. But I don't, I don't think they they definitely don't get paid for the for the amount of time and effort and. Oh, absolutely. I've, I've spent most of my life now living um, in agricultural areas and uh, I, I won't say I know huge numbers of farmers, but I know a small number of farmers pretty well. And um, I wouldn't change places. Not a chance. <laughs> no, I, I think it's, it's, just, it's a temperament, it's a personality thing and I think they do enjoy it. But yeah, and we, we still have to appreciate it. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think one of the things I've heard that farmers talk about is that we need to be paying more for our food if we want to um, increase the quality of it, if we if we want to really sort of put money back into things like biodiversity. Because they're at fa- as well, the farmers are really, even in, in and around farmland, there are there's bits of wooded area, there's mm-hmm. the farms themselves. They are really the custodians in, 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 in many ways to those lands, in, in particularly in the UK and, and in other agricultural countries across the globe. Mm-hmm. I think what one of the arguments they're making is we, we need to pay well, like maybe double for our food, let's say, and, and there'd be more money to be able to go back into maintaining these areas and things like that. I don't know how um, accurate that is. I'm not sure. Well, I, I think, I think uh, if you did that, you'd actually find uh, that the uh, profitability of farms wouldn't anything like double because you'd see the costs of change as well in response to that. One of the um, simple problems that many farmers face is that they don't own the land that they um, farm. So you pay them a subsidy for maybe some sort of environmental action, that sort of stuff, and their rent goes up. So, you know, that destroys a lot of the incentive to try and and get things changed. But I I want to raise a a particular issue with regard to uh, biodiversity, because I do think that the the policies we're pursuing are particularly ineffective. Um, Now, there's two types of of policy there. There's the the sort of ones that um, take some land out and put it into conservation. 
Okay, and um, that can that can work quite well for certain species, but it's it, this is chicken feed compared to. Uh, wasn't a deliberate pun, um, compared to the vast majority of um, funding uh, that, that goes from government into farming. Now, a little bit of context on this. What's happened over the last, particularly the last 200 years, and at an accelerating rate, so for example, uh, the last 50 years have been the, the, some of the fastest with regard to this, is that uh, the land structure in, in the UK has changed quite a lot. Farming's become much more intensive. Um, it's also taken up more land. So lands that originally were habitats for a whole host of species that are now highly endangered are, are now being dragged into, into agriculture. So, you know, heathlands, moorlands, marshes, um, peatlands, these are the areas that we've lost over uh, that period of time. What we're getting now is a series of policies to try and address the species loss that's occurred uh, over that, which uh, are actually proving very ineffective. So you'll get policies which pay farmers, and these are called nature-friendly farming policies, which I think is um, uh, um, one of the biggest misnomers out, um, that will pay farmers, for example, to um, uh, apply less fertiliser, apply less uh, pesticides, or to leave margins around their fields, or to take a little corner out and, uh, and maybe plant some trees on it, that's that sort of thing, all right? That has very little impact on those species that cannot live on farmland, whether it's intensively farmed or um, even organically farmed. They can't live there because they're species like the marsh harrier, you know, and the clue is in the name. It needs marshlands. Right. It can't survive on organic farmland. Yeah. Um, and we are not helping those species anything like the degree that they need to actually avoid. Well, eventually, if we carry on, extinction. We're already one of the most nature-depleted depleted countries in the world. And many would say the most uh, nature-depleted. So you've got a lot of schemes which do very little for the real endangered species in this country. They do help common species. Um, and not to be too facetious, you know, they're great. If you're, if you're a pigeon, they're great. Absolutely fantastic. But they do have another effect, and that's what's being missed. When you reduce the amount of land that you're, you're farming or the intensity uh, with which you're farming it, there might be some good aspects to that as well. But one of the other factors is you reduce the amount of food being produced hmm. okay right. and the reduction can be quite dramatic so yeah. if we took the whole of the uk into organic production estimates are that food production might fall by as much as 40 percent yeah that's a lot of food that's on the supply side on the demand side in a country like the uk it has almost no effect at all in other words we still eat the same amount of food so where's that food coming from? It's coming from somewhere. It's obviously not coming from these areas.
is, so it's coming from somewhere else. And a lot of it is coming from imports. So you reduce your amount of production here in the UK, um, and yes, you get some more common species, but you don't get the real uh, endangered stuff. And you increase production overseas. And unfortunately, the sort of areas that we um, import food from, including areas that are very cheap, such as the Amazon, very cheap land. Just burn it down, there you go. Grow soya for beef, that sort of thing. Um, Southeast Asian rainforests, burn that down. You know, off you go, you can grow palm oil, that's that sort of thing. But, of course, that destruction of habitat is damaging the species in the, those areas. So what we're getting is, in the UK, more pigeons, that sort of thing. In Brazil, less giant anteaters. Southeast Asia, less orangutans. This is pretty bad. You know, this is a very bad trade-off. Right. So we have to stop this approach. We have to start thinking about the whole effect of our policies, not just the effect right in the field that I'm looking at. Yeah. Think about what's happening outside as well. Yeah, because it sounds as though almost the policies that are in place, for example, in like the UK, but maybe in some other places as well. Europe. Is, yeah, Europe. Yeah. Um, there are policies in place and they are helping potentially more common species and in yeah. terms of those type of species. But because they're more common species, they're not necessarily the ones that really are the, are the most risk. It's there are those endangered animals, it's the, the, the diversity of species like orangutans in, um, in East Asia. Mm. That, so it sounds as though that these policies are actually quite expensive and actually maybe not giving us the result that we, we, we really need. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I will, just to, you know, full, full disclosure, I will accept that the way things are going, species that are common now won't be common in the Right. Okay. Yeah, so that, that's okay. how bad things are. Even on farmland, you're still seeing a decline in farmland birds, which is not a good sign. Yeah. Uh, but it's it, it's this um, uh, out of sight effect that I want to sort of emphasise today. Yeah. This this effect that occurs when you focus your attention on one area and yeah. you just look at the effect of your policy on that one area. And you ignore the, the fact that this is a connected world and it will have an effect somewhere else. Reducing food here doesn't change the amount of food that's eaten here. Mm -hmm. So it's coming from somewhere. Right. No, that's completely fair. I mean, the, the follow-up issue really with that is, quite frankly, that, that as you pointed out um, quite elo eloquently, is the fact that when is the price, well, not necessarily price, but price, but it's also it's, it's really the supply. I mean, a, a reasonable example of this in terms of recent memory, although it was definitely intertwined with a lot of other factors as well, yeah. was Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, oh, yeah. Sri Lanka made um, a big fuss and a big thing about, right, we are going to be an organic, natural farming country. Every single thing, we're going to be 100%, yes. you know, on, on all that. And in concept it's one of those ideas where in concept it sounds great because particularly it's, it's a tourist oh, it it, it's a tourist Wonderful. it's a tourist country yeah, as well right. people are going to want to go there and eat organic foods and things like that yeah. on paper it made a, a lot of sense unfortunately the problems as you quietly outlined because the production was so 
sorry, that reduced and because yeah. they couldn't necessarily rely on imports because the other main factor at that time was COVID-19, loss of tourism, tourism is a massive yeah. deal in Sri Lanka, obviously, but also... And, and also they're not as rich as us. No, no, so, so, they're, they're, not, so, know, so, so they're, they're more susceptible yeah. to shocks like that. Yeah. And unfortunately, it's quite literally bankrupted the country. Yeah multitude of factors yeah. maybe covid was more of important than that but certainly but yes, certainly in that but, period yeah. but certainly the, the the move to organics was a, a significant contributing factor yeah. so it does identify the fact that you know we it's there is definitely an identified risk and concern around by that biodiversity loss but we do have to weigh that up against obviously people and um, economic factors as well. So the question I think well, I'd sort of pose to you really is, mm. is there a way that we can better manage yeah. current conservation policies along, alongside farming policies yeah. so that we are getting a, a better bang for, your, for our buck in terms of like yeah. input to output? Yeah, no, definitely, definitely are. And um, first of all, I want to rule out a few policies that would definitely work, but uh, I don't think they're socially acceptable, like uh, mass genocide. You know, people... <laughs> Which, just, yeah, I mean... Yeah, that, it's, that... It's, not, it's not a popular move. There is... One of the roots, which I said at the start, of, of why we've got this problem is there is a heck of a lot of people on this planet. So... I'm going to make the decision in thinking about solutions that mass genocide is not one of them. Yeah, so of course, pe- yeah. people say, well, we've just got too many people. Well, we're going to have to work w- w- within that. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm always sceptical about where that thought goes. Okay, when people yeah, say like too many people. Okay, I get it, but at the same time, where are we going here? Yes, it's, um, it's, not, it's, not, it's not a good scenario in the, in, no, in the future. Um, other ones that I'm not really very interested in, Again, which you already talked about, is everybody goes vegetarian or, or vegan. Yes, that would be great. And I do actually think we should be um, having more general discussions and information for people about um, the, the other benefits of changing their diet as well, because there's, there's no doubt that um, uh, over-reliance on meat in your diet actually is not particularly good for your health as well. But... I'm not prepared to um, risk the future on some crazy assumption about how people are going to change their diets. So what we have to do is to move to a way of making decisions which consider all the consequences of those decisions. Now, you would think that that's the way we do it already. It's not. It's absolutely not what we do. We have this real tendency, this sort of focusing problem of looking at the immediate impact on the immediate area that we're acting on. Mm. You know, so we have a, a, a policy for um, uh, conservation in this particular region or country. So we just look at conservation. In the, we don't think about how is that going to affect conservation, food production, that sort of stuff elsewhere. Mm. So we have to move to a system of making decisions which consider all the consequences of those decisions. It's pretty difficult to argue against doing that. In fact, not doing that is exactly why we are where we are. Would 
So, I mean, this is going to be a little bit contentious just because of, of, of recent like history within the UK. But is this like one of the, what I would imagine would be one of the big benefits of the UK being a part of something like the European Union? <laughs> because you have a group of countries, essentially, that could, if they weren't a part of it, make up their own policies on the guard. It would be hard to coordinate these kind yes. of things. You could even have some situations that are in potential prisoners dilemma in, in a sense that, mm-hmm. you know, some, you know, we could all collectively agree, right, we're going to do this. But then as soon as one person deviates, Absolutely. you know, everyone has to deviate and that yeah. creates a negative yeah, yeah. Uh, Pareto inefficient outcome. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to pull it out on the back of my mind. No, that's very good. That's um, very good, yeah. But with something like the European Union, essentially, when you're creating legislation across all the countries that yeah. have to follow, or at least they're more likely to follow, it's um, a scenario where these policies maybe are going to have a greater effect. Yes. Is encouraging some of these like things like the European Union, or even something, it, and obviously China is, well, China's big enough as it, as it is, but coordination and yeah. committees, you could call it the World Trade, World Trade Organization, coordination between these committees and these organizations to help make policies and manage policies in this country so there's a coordinated effort. Yes. Yeah. You're absolutely right to raise this thing called the prisoner's dilemma. The prisoner's dilemma is a situation where classically two two or more parties come together and if they act together, they will both come to a better situation. Um, Now, unfortunately... One of those partners realises, ah, oh, actually, what would be even better is if you do the right thing and I don't. Classic example is uh, let's cut um, emissions in cities. That's quite mm-hmm. a topical one at the moment. Right, so I think you should stop driving your car into the city, yeah. all right? Um, walk or, or go on the bus or something like that. You know, that's going to be... Everybody does that. That's going to be so much better for society. However, I'd rather I drive into the city because it's even more convenient. I can then I can park right in front of, of uh, where I work. It's just going to be fantastic. Trouble is, everybody else is thinking exactly the same thing. Classic, you know, another example is um, doing something about climate change. Mm. Right? We all know, well, I hope we all know, I don't know, worries me (laughs) Um, anybody who um, uh, actually accepts evidence (laughs) knows that um, we are in a really serious position about um, uh, climate change things are changing at a rate that I never thought I would see in my life Um, worst case scenarios I used to, because I've been doing this a long time, about 30 years, the the worst case scenarios of 30 years ago, they they are more than fulfilled. We we didn't even have worst case scenarios that that are as bad as as what we've already got now. And that's happening apace all all the time. Um, Now, everybody therefore reckons, recognises, I hope, that it would be a good idea to avert the sort of very, very, let me use economic language, the very significant costs that are going to be imposed on the world of not doing anything about climate change. That's a sort of euphemism for many people dying, a large majority of the population living in much lower um, uh, welfare than they would do uh, otherwise. 
Um, so everybody kind of recognises this. But what would be better for me, as let's say the UK, um, is if we don't do anything about climate change and you, as the rest of the world, do. And that's the problem that we're all in as a planet. Right. Because we're all in that situation and everybody thinks, oh, maybe I can just drag my feet a little bit on this one. Getting together with other countries. So suppose that there was actually some sort of mechanism, some amazing sort of union, um, which actually brought together um, Britain with other countries in Europe. I think whoever thinks of something like that, it's a great idea. We ought to try it sometime. Um, that would produce outcomes which were actually, in the end, lower cost for absolutely everyone yeah. and much higher benefits. Yeah, I think there's definitely any type of those, those situations where you have coordination and cooperation. I think it obviously helps to implement those policies and make better policies that are actually effective. It is a little bit nuanced, though, because I think one thing that people do always bring up is, like, for example, like China. China is obviously mm -hmm. contains over 22% of the world's population, or India potentially. I think India's just overtaken them. Um, big users of coal and other you know, other, yeah. other fossil fuels. Yeah. Now, if we said, like, as a blanket per capita basis across the world, let's say there was some sort of union that could do that and say, right, per capita, even real, like, per capita basis, let's say you can't do that. Well, it's a little bit unfair to those regions because they are poorer and because the, the, the ability to create, well, the policies that would be implemented that would create increased energy costs or increased food costs are going to hit those people much more significantly than other people. Mm -hmm. And it's very easy for us as in the West or as British people to say that but we went for our industrial revolution several years ago yeah. it's a little bit unfair to say that well china's actually built for exactly becoming sort of almost like a middle-income country now there are some indicators that suggest they have a burgeoning middle class things like mm. cars per household and things like that which are useful indicators mm -hmm. uh, and they've potentially got their own issues in being in a middle-income trap but countries like nigeria who have very large populations um, and are still developing and trying to get their feet off the ground in that regard. I think it's a little bit unfair to say, right, okay, you guys can't do that. And because if you were to do it, you're actually going to hinder your population. And people yeah. could yeah. seriously die and, cause that, and those are serious consequences for those things. So in, a, in that regard, I think the West or like the more developed countries does have to take more of the burden in some aspects for the roles that they take. But then again, most of the world is sitting in the developing regions. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to have the biggest impact on climate change or biodiversity loss, you would have to affect those countries. So Well, per capita, actually, they're, they're not producing very much in the way of greenhouse gases still. Okay, um, on a per capita basis. No, not, not at all. But obviously, yeah, it, it, it definitely adds up. But um, let me tell you a little bit about my... Uh, if you like, which I think helps this. Don't worry, this isn't going to long. Um, I started off in a straight economics department, and, you know, that's what I got my training in. And um, economics um, is extremely good and absolutely vital um, at answering the uh, questions that are uh, about how do we use the limited amounts of resources that we've got available to the best end, right? Now, that sort of analysis, which is 
called by an economist efficiency analysis, getting the most out of something, you can, um, you can characterise it as let's make the cake as big as possible given the ingredients that we've got. And that seems like a really sensible thing to do. Okay. There is a flip side of that though. You don't put much em emphasis on who gets the slices, the equity uh, uh, side of it. One thing that I've realised over the past sort of 30 years is that if you ignore equity, um, you actually impair efficiency. You end up with a smaller cake because um, you think, no, no, we're going to do the thing that uses the resources in the absolute best way possible. You're poor, well, that's, that's, that's tough. We're going to actually use things in the way that looks best, for example, with regard to cutting uh, CO2. The problem with that is that you are putting other countries in a situation where they've got very little incentive to actually join in with your scheme. Mm -hmm. Why yeah. the hell should we? Right. And China is the classic example. Now, China, even in my lifetime, has actually turned into, um, uh, it has turned from um, really quite a weak economy. Yeah, really. absolutely. Very, very big in terms of population, very weak in terms of um, its, its economy. It has shot past and now become you know, arguably the, most, uh, the, the strongest uh, uh, economy uh, in the world. Right. Um, to be honest, it's, it's astonishing, and it's, it's probably done. It's the it's the one thing that I can point to over the last maybe like fifty years that has probably raised the most people out of poverty. Yes, globally. absolutely. And, and people don't give them enough credit for that. Their ability to grow like that. Yeah. You, you can talk about a lot of things, but. In terms of reducing global poverty, that's probably the one thing that has done that. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It's, I mean, the, the poverty story is an interesting one because um, if you just look at percentages, percentage of the world population that's in poverty, you can tell an extremely positive story about the last 50 years. Um, you, you tell a story where the uh, proportion of the world's population that is in abject poverty co absolutely collapses. You, it's, it's not quite as good as that statistic sounds like because at the same time, population has grown. So, right. you know, what, uh, you know, 10% of the world's population um, uh, 50 years ago and 10% of the world's population now is a very different number. So there was still a right. lot of, of individual souls in very bad situations. Yeah, I mean, but I, nevertheless, I, you know, it is quite remarkable. No, no of course, and to, to, to that point, you could have a situation, I don't know if this is the case, but um, the percentage of people, global people that are impoverished or below the poverty line could be going down, but because populations are increasing, it could be the, amount, the physical amount of people that are in poverty or below the poverty line could be stable or even potentially going uh, up. Actually, it, but probably the, the best rough estimate is it's stayed about stable. It's the, the actual number of people in poverty has stayed roughly the same, but world population has exploded and... Um, the proportion of people now on a uh, a non-subsistence or, or below poverty wage wage has uh, improved greatly. Yeah, due to the growth that's been able to achieve and those new people being able to, you know. Yeah, yeah, and and I've got I don't have much time for um, 
those of us that want to transform us back into some um, never existing um, economy where um, um, we, we all use very um, uh, low productivity methods um, to produce food in particular, it's one thing I'm very interested in, um, because it all, all feels good. Mm. Um, if you do that, you will end up um, increasing the amount of poverty around the world enormously. You know, it's it's still too many, and we still, I feel, as humans, have an obligation to do something uh, about that. And the fact that uh, many countries, and I'm trying to say, including ours, have cut our aid budgets over the last um, uh, few years uh, is shameful, absolutely shameful, and very very counterproductive. Because we could actually be using that money uh, both to lift people out of poverty, but also to help restructure economies in ways that don't impact upon the environment so much. And therefore, you know, are, are good for us. Carbon dioxide is, is a perfectly mixing gas. You emit it somewhere, it ends up spread all over the, the world. It doesn't stick near to wherever it was emitted. Yeah. Okay, so... Uh, reducing carbon dioxide wherever is good, is, is, is pretty much equally good for us here. No, I understand. Bringing this back to, again to the, the environmental side of it, mm. one argument I've actually seen, because this is also talking or hitting on something we also talked about earlier, that a lot of people say that we've actually got too many people. Yeah. Some arguments I've actually seen have been that actually we almost counterintuitively we need, we need more, more people because the productivity. Um, conundrum that you kind of mentioned because more people create more um, brain power you end up having more genius inventions and things will be invented that will increase efficiency and productivity potentially and I've seen that argument made I again blimey I'm afraid I've never come across that one Uh, I mean I don't know who said that I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying this but that sounds bonkers to me okay um uh you know, it would be a good idea if we started off educating the people that are already here. That right, would be yeah. a pretty decent um, uh, starting point. Um, I think this allows me to bring bring us back a bit to the sort of um, food and conservation uh, topic that, that we, we started. I remember talking about this issue that um, uh, nature-friendly farming, uh, if it actually means reducing the amount of food being produced just transfers that impact elsewhere in the world. Okay, So we have to move to a situation where we use brain power, we use better technologies to actually ensure that we produce more food with less resource, and particularly uh, with less land resource and with less impact upon the environment. Hmm. I actually think that one of the best ways that we can conserve species is by changing the way in which we produce food. Not, not so much, you know, uh, just thinking, oh, we must think about, um, uh, you know, habitat and that sort of stuff. Habitat won't be given the space it needs if we're cons- constantly hemmed in by a requirement to, to produce massive amounts of food in ways that are actually not that 
technologically advanced anymore. You know, and and also environmentally um, uh, unsustainable. We can't uh, respond to this problem that I, I set up about uh, land and conservation by just saying, right, okay. So what we'll do is with the agricultural land, we'll throw even more fertilizer, even more pesticides. Um, we'll plow even deeper um, on that land to get more food out of it because long term you won't. You will reduce the productivity of that land uh, over time. You'll be forced into a cycle of more and more and more imports, inputs, sorry, all the time and more imports probably. Um, and you will end up destroying the basis of um, the, f the food production system. Yeah, you're, de you're degrading your food producing asset, which is the, the land. Yeah, and once you do that, it's, it, everything else falls apart after that. You know, it's it's like you know, try 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 living for um, uh, a day or two without water. It's oh. it all falls apart really, really fast. So, what do we have to do if we actually want to conserve our wild species, which I think is phenomenally important, important to a degree that we don't really fully appreciate, uh, both because. Biodiversity gives us a, a stock of information and um, uh, uh, inputs to our well-being, which uh, is, is way beyond our, our ability to compute uh, its, its value. Um, so we're going to have to do that in a way which provides more land for that diminishing biodiversity so that it can actually recover again mm. but not at the cost of reducing food mm. because otherwise we're just shift, shifting it somewhere out of sight right so there's a there's been a very important agreement um oh gosh i should know this i think it was earlier this year when was it start last year sorry um i, I should know that um whereby the countries of the world came together and agreed that uh, by 2030, 30% of land should be uh, reserved for nature. Okay. Now, in principle, I'm all in favour of that. I really am. But the devil will be in the detail about this. And if actually all that really means is that a load of rich countries will um you know fence off an area so they can say oh we did that one okay but actually they're just importing food and other imports from other countries which obviously won't be complying with that uh, requirement then that hasn't avoided the problem that's just swept it under the carpet into the next room can't see it anymore we're, we're feeling really great about that and that that way of thinking doesn't just apply with re, with regard to biodiversity. It applies a lot with regards to carbon. So a lot of our carbon emissions now are offshored. Yeah, I'm, I'm worried about carbon like trading schemes and things that companies can use to basically trade, depending on how much they want to pollute and or need to pollute in their industries, they can trade carbon certificates. I think they are. And um, so it sounds like there's like almost like a similar policy you could end up or like in theory yeah. that you could have for farmland essentially yeah, yeah so i think the, the way forward is to be 
taking some of the um, pretty large amounts of money that we put into uh, agriculture. Um, just on the side, I personally think it would be a good idea to uh, use some of that money to provide a, um, a guaranteed income for um, some of our poorest uh, farmers. It wouldn't actually cost a huge amount of that budget. Um, and at the moment, we have a system which is, which is colossally unfair. So basically, most of the money goes to very rich uh, landowners. Um, roughly, 75% um, of the money goes to 25% of the, of the farms. Oh, I see. So, so there is like a hierarchy in the farms and it's very top-heavy in terms of the, uh, yeah, the wealth so, as well. So remember, this is public money. This is taxpayers' money. And at the moment, it's divvied out according to uh, how much land you've got. So the more land you get, that you've got, the more tax money you get, which means that you know the, the, the people that benefit the most from this are you know, people like James Dyson and the Duke of Westminster and that sort of stuff. So it's interesting, you know, your tax money is going into their pockets. And that, because you know, they've you, been able to buy up land. They've got huge amounts of land. Yeah, yeah. This is public money. Aside from the you know equity side of that, surely it should be going to produce public goods. You know, the sort of things that you can't buy in Sainsbury's. I can't buy bird conservation in Sainsbury's. Yeah. Can't buy water quality. Can't buy lower greenhouse gas. Emissions can't buy access to recreation, okay. But via these schemes, we can do this now. In principle, the law has been changed now to allow this. The yeah. 2020 Agriculture Act introduced this principle of public money going for public goods. At the moment, that hasn't really been implemented. In the, in the way, certainly, that I, that I was expecting. I think that this will change. I think that what we'll see is uh, a rollout of public money for public goods, which actually favours those farms that, um, that do produce what we, as citizens, want and can't buy in the supermarket. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, it shouldn't actually, in my view, be going uh, to uh, boost the profits of um, uh, of um, these very large uh, uh, landowners. One of the things it can do, though, is help support technologies which can produce more food in smaller areas with lower environmental impact. With with one proviso, I think what we should be saying to farmers is right we'll do we'll fund you for this we will help you do this and it'll and you'll get more food production out of this and therefore you'll make more money but we want something in return and the thing we want in return are public goods such as we want some land for, for nature we want to see less runoff into rivers yeah we want to see lower greenhouse gases. And that's, that's, that, to me, is a perfectly reasonable trade. You know, I'm coming to you with money. Yep. You're a farmer. I'm saying, right, I'm happy to give you this money. In the past, I've given it you really for very little 
return. Yeah. Now I'm saying, right, I'll carry on giving it you, but I want these things in return. Right. Um, and would you mitigate those depending on the productivity of the farms themselves because obviously like i said there are poorer farms that maybe there are that would be trickier for them to be able to implement those things yeah well as i already said you know i yeah. would like to see some of this funding be used to actually ref, uh, lift the poorest farmers out of poverty so that because um, there are really poor farmers out there there are some farmers uh, still that would be better off giving up and as we used to call it, going on the dole, basically. Um, and um, I don't feel that that's um, h- how uh, the countryside should be um, supported. But that's a relatively small proportion of the roughly 3 billion, 3,000 million that we give to agriculture every year for that. I think the rest of it should actually be to actually enter into partnerships with farmers where we support them in ways like high technology uh, farming, which will make them better off. So I'm not asking them to do this for no personal gain. I'm I'm very keen on incentivising people to do things. But in return, I want something as the taxpayer. Yeah. And moving slightly away from the UK and over to the EU, um, as you mentioned, the, the amounts that are spent every year just, just on the UK in terms of those farmlands and those subsidies, the, the common agriculture policy um, has consistently been the EU's most expensive policy, yes. right? Yes. So it's clearly an area where they're putting a lot of investment in and time and effort in. Are they getting like a reasonable return on their investment there? No. No. <laughs> really not. Um, no, I'm afraid not. Um, this is nothing to do. This is nothing special to do with the EU here. We weren't getting a, a good return here either uh, right. on agricultural um, uh, subsidies. Uh, no, it's not been very good value for money at all to date. As I say, it's funneled most of it towards very rich people. Mm. Straight away, certainly seems to be um, uh, an odd approach for a country which, in other respects, actually tries to change the the tax system so that rich people pay more and poorer people pay less. This was exactly the opposite, you know, Uh, with the common agriculture, sorry, with the um, uh, UK's uh, subsidies prior to the 2020 bill. It was almost always the case that the richer you were, and particularly the more land you owned, the more money you got. Mm. So that, that was a, a, um, you know, immediately um, a, a, a poor uh, outcome from public spending. But also in terms of the amount of public goods that were generated, um, no, not wasn't very good value for uh, at all. One of the, the things that does kind of annoy me is that um, farmers' representatives, I think, haven't done a good job uh, for, for poor farmers. I really think they should have done more for the poorer members of uh, their uh, industry um, and actually helped 
them more than uh, they have been helped today. Yeah, our, um, so it sounds as though the, at least prior to leaving the EU, our policies were obviously the same as the, the European unions, yeah. but have ours de- deviated in, in the time or are they pretty much still aligned? Well, it, it, in terms of law, they've changed radically. Oh, okay. Yeah, and really for the better. Oh, so it's um, a yeah, absolutely. A lot of the legal roadblocks to delivering um, uh, public money for public goods have, have been removed. There's, there's dangers still there. So one of the dangers is that um, uh, farmers' representatives, I don't think it's, it's, you know, I've got a lot of time for, for the average farmer, I really have, um, would love us to believe that one of the public goods we should be paying for is food, okay? Um, that, uh, but food is not a public good. If food was a public good, okay, a public good is something that I can enjoy without paying for it. So public good is um, uh, walking in a wood, mm-hmm. okay? That's great. I go there, I get benefits, don't pay for it. Um, you know, there might be some tax support for it, that sort of stuff, but I don't pay for it anyway. The only time that food will be a public good in this country is when I can go into Sainsbury's. I'm not on a deal with Sainsbury's, by the way. So, uh, fill up my trolley and walk out without paying. Then it's a public good. Yeah. What we're doing at the moment is we're paying through taxes and then paying again in the supermarket. Right. That's not a public good. So don't come to me saying that, oh, we have to um, support... Uh, uh, food production because it's a public good. And particularly, don't give me this rubbish about somehow that the more that we pay in subsidies, the lower food prices will be. Just think about it, right? I'm the public purse, you're the farmer, all right? And over there, all right, there's a supermarket in France, okay? So I'm giving you British public money, okay? And you produce food. Now, you can sell it. You can sell it to the poor people in this country at a low price. We can sell it to the supermarket in France at a high price. Yeah, right. Who are you going to sell to? France. Of course. You know, what we, we expect farmers to suddenly stop being businesses and suddenly become some sort of altruistic organisation. Yeah. That doesn't make farmers bad people. I'd do exactly the same. I'd be selling to the French, absolutely. Yeah, it's just in economic incentives, right? It's just nonsense to say that public money keeps food prices down. Cool. And on that note, as we sort of wind down the episode, <laughs> I think, uh, it's a good note to end on. Um, do you have any pieces of research that are going on at the moment or anything you would like to direct uh, the listeners to if you... Oh, loads of stuff. I think the one that I'd like to emphasise the most is that we are building um, an AI decision support system, an artificial intelligence decision support system. Pretty adventurous. When I say we, this is a big team. I can't list all the people. It's not. They will know it's not just me. Um, So this is an attempt to bring together all of the natural science, the physical science, natural science, you know, water, um, uh, ecology, that sort of stuff, physical science, climate change, that sort of stuff, the um, uh, the economics to do with food production, 
uh, woodlands, um, even the economics of conservation and the social uh, benefit that comes out of that in terms of things like food and conservation, that sort of stuff. A model of everything designed in a way that a non-specialist can use this model to actually say, right, okay, so this is the way the world is now. What happens if I do this? And it will tell you all of the consequences of doing that. It won't just say, well, this is what happens on the field that you did that in. Yeah. It'll say, these are the consequences in that field. These are the consequences in that region. This is across the whole country. This is across the whole world. Right. These are the effects that you're actually having. We are trying to move away from this um, focusing problem to actually provide tools to decision makers in government, in business and in communities that will empower them to understand the consequences of the decisions they take. They still take whatever decisions they want, but now you'll know what the consequences are. That sounds very interesting and hopefully <laughs> with uh, AI behind it, it should be able to uh, make some advancements in that area, hopefully. And in fairness of economics, as you kind of said as well, um, creating a, a large model of like essentially the, the, world, the global economy of those interacting factors is so difficult because it's such a multivariate equation. So if it AI is. can help us with even a small portion of that, I think that's going to be very, very interesting research to look out for. But yeah, so links will be in the description down below, guys. And um, yeah, check the stuff out. And thank you for joining me today, Ian. And until the next one, we'll, uh, we'll see you soon. Thank Bye. you very much for inviting me. Thanks. Thank you for watching this episode of the Marginal Bubble podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider liking and subscribing down below, as well as commenting any future topics you would like to see discussed. But until then, see you soon.